0: You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Rutledge. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Well, good morning, everyone. Worship team, thank you so much. Can we give it up to the worship team just getting us going this morning? Wow, thank you guys. Um, my name is Caleb, and I'm the men's ministry director here at Redlands, and I made the coffee this morning too, so if you have any comments on that, uh, let me know. Um, so I get to, to bring the word this morning, and it's so great to see a lot of you all again after getting a chance to work alongside you yesterday, being the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. And we've already mentioned it a couple times, but I just want to pause and say, you know, this Love Redlands event was so cool for me to go and see us as a church be a part of the church, and for all of the variety of churches throughout our city to come together under the banner of the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus, Amen. and to go out and to serve the community that we're a part of in practical, meaningful ways. And I'm reminded of um, Ephesians 2.10, where we're told that we're God's worksmanship, and we're created in Christ Jesus so that we may do good works which God prepared beforehand for us to do. So sometimes we can say, like, oh, I only was painting a curb, I only picked up some trash, I only handed out a water bottle to someone, but those small things are good works that God established and ordained for you to do before the beginning of time. He goes before us and behind us, and so you had a chance, those of you who were able to join yesterday, to participate in God's redemptive work in the world, and I think that is so cool. So thank you all for um, those of you who, uh, who were working yesterday and serving the Lord in that capacity, and thank you all for being here this morning with me. All right, so I'm going to sort of jump right in, and Jason last week got us started with our series on the best is yet to come, and we've been thinking about as a church how um, the best is yet to come, and we're, we're putting our faith in God's promise that if we follow him, that the best is yet to come, and that things will always get better and better and better as we get closer and closer to Jesus, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And so, Jason, I was uh, last week visiting my family clear across the country all the way in South Carolina, and so I'm listening on my AirPods, and I'm like, a couple times, Jason, had me go, woo, your little fist pumps or something. And I love thinking about how this, God's promises aren't uh, done on our timeline, right? And I'm glad that they're not, because there's a lot of things in my life that I wanted to be done that didn't happen, and I'm glad that they didn't now that I look back. So I see God's timing is good. And then I see that God's promises are different than what we might expect, So the nation of Israel was building a temple to the Lord where his glory was supposed to reside. And God's like, I have a better plan. It's not going to be on your timing, but I'm going to come and live in each one of you, and you are going to be a temple. Each of you, my spirit is going to come live in your heart. And as I do that, I'm going to transform your lives, and I'm going to truly make you more and more like me. And as long as you follow me, the best will always be yet to come. In this life, and then in the next life, you'll get to be with me for eternity. And so today we're going to look at a story that helps us uh, to see all that in, in, a, um, in a real sense. We're going to see Jesus show up in the tragedies of life and how he deals with the people that are experiencing those tragedies and how his plans are a little different than what we might have, but his plans are best. And if we're following the Lord, that the best is yet to come. Um, I'll give a slight disclaimer just like Jason did last week. When we look at the Bible, the story of God's, God's story... It revolves around his people in Israel. And so today as we talk, there'll be some discussion about some political context or some historical context in Israel that Jesus was uh, facing in his day. This is a commentary on what the Bible teaches us and how we can use the Bible as a mirror to inform how we live today. In no way is it a political commentary on current world events. Um, With that being said, I'll get us started in prayer, but I also want to say that we're commanded to pray for God's people and to pray for peace, and also to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. And so as we get started today, um, we'll definitely have those things in mind. So let's uh, close our eyes and pray together. Lord, we thank you that your plans are best, that your ways are higher than ours. We thank you that you answer our cries for help, but in the way that you know that we need that that help. Lord, we pray for your people in Israel, that you protect them You tell us that you give your people strength and you bless them with peace, and we ask that you do that quickly, Lord. We pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. We pray that the Holy Spirit works in their hearts and convicts them of sin and turns them to repentance in you. Lord, everyone in this room today was once an enemy of yours, and you worked in our hearts and transformed our lives and called called us into your service, and we ask that you do that today across the world. We pray for peace in the many world conflicts around the world. I pray today that as we study your word, that you help me to speak truthfully of you and to speak clearly of you. And I ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are tender and open to your message as we look at your story today. In your mighty name, amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to hit the ground running. We're going to be looking at a story of Jesus' life where he demonstrates his power over death where he demonstrates that he's going to call us to a new life in him. And in order to get going, that's going to be in John 11, but we're going to start first with John 10 and verse uh, 22 through 31. We have to set the stage here. So the story we're looking at today is the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And this comes at the tail end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So to, to zoom out all the way and give us the, the political perspective of what's going on, around 63 AD, uh, B.C., Jerusalem was conquered by the Roman general Pompey. And Pompey brings with him the Roman peace. So back in those days, the Roman emperor declared that he was the son of God, that he had come to bring peace to the earth. And so Pompey brought that Roman peace to Jerusalem. And the Roman peace is a peace characterized by law and order, by brutal discipline. And as long as there's order and discipline, the Roman peace is maintained. And so Jesus is born into a political situation where the Jewish religious and political leaders have made this fragile alliance with Rome, where they're allowed a degree of self-governance and autonomy in exchange for order and discipline within their cities. And when things start to disrupt the delicate balance of political power, Rome does not tolerate power vacuums in the the territories it has conquered. And Rome will seize whatever power it needs to to ensure that the Roman peace is maintained, no matter what the cost is. That means brutally putting down uprisings, it means uh, political persecution for Rome's political enemies. And so the religious leaders have very good reason to be concerned about anyone who starts to be disruptive or who gathers a large following. And time and time and time again throughout their history they've seen large followings that follow charismatic leaders that threaten their nation's stability. And so we start off here, uh, Jesus has been in this intensive training program with his disciples for three years. He starts his ministry. We talked about this a month ago. He goes out into the desert and is tempted. And after those temptations and learning to rely on God and demonstrating his reliance on God, he begins his earthly ministry. He calls his disciples to him. And they've made circuits around this country. They've been eating the dust of their rabbi, walking along the roads with him, and watching how he interacts with people, learning from his teachings, and seeing how he lives, Jesus is preparing them for their own ministries after he's gone. And so they've been doing this for three years, and each time uh, Jesus goes to Jerusalem during his ministry, Jesus is a practicing Jew, and so he's required to go to the temple during the year for different religious festivals. And each time he goes, the tension between him and the political machine starts to grow and become more and more intense. And so we see now the the tension between Jesus and the religious and political leaders is at an all-time high. And so we're going to start here reading in John 10, verse 22, and, and uh, we'll go from there. So it was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. So it's, uh, this is important, right? Remember all these details here. It's in the winter. It's near the time of Hanukkah. So this is like late December. Jesus is crucified sometime between April 4th and 8th. There's like the accepted window by historical scholars. So we're about 120 days or so from Jesus' crucifixion. And he's walking through the temple and he's walking in Solomon's colonnade. They can see the temple, the Holy of Holies, the big building. And the crowds are anxious. Hanukkah is a, is a politically charged holiday for the Jews. And so they surround Jesus and they say, we're done. We don't want to wait anymore. We want a Messiah. We want someone to deliver us from Rome. Don't keep us in suspense anymore. Are you the Messiah? Is it you? Are you going to do something about the situation that we're living in? And Jesus replied, I've already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. What are some of the works that Jesus has been doing? He's been giving sight to the blind. He's been uh, freeing people from oppression and from sin and from slavery. So he's doing the works that the Messiah would do in the name of his father. He's saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. I already told you you didn't believe me. The proof is the works that I've done because you didn't believe my testimony. So I'm giving you evidence to believe that I'm the Messiah. But you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. And so Jesus makes some very bold claims here, and the people immediately, once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. So what is it that Jesus said that bothered these people so much? They stop him in Solomon's Colonnade in the middle of the Festival of Dedication in Hanukkah. They're celebrating a a holiday, that is newer to the Jewish people at this time than the 4th of July is to us now, right? And so Hanukkah, the feast, the festival of dedication, a king had come and was ruling over Jerusalem, Antiochus Sixth, And he had made some astounding claims. He claimed to be the son of God, sent from God, and he was God. And he set up in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of God, he set up a statue of Zeus, and then acting as the high priest, he sacrificed pigs in the temple of God to the statue of Zeus, and he desecrated the temple. And so this revolt happens, where the Jews remove this foreign king from power, who has made this claim. Those—that's the lion's den back there. So everyone, it's okay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, our kids are back here in the back, and they're um, learning about Daniel and the lion's den. So I think that the mouths of the lions have just been shut. All right, so where are we? So this king, he's made the claim that he's the son of God, that him and God are one, and that he's sent from God, and he is God. And he changes their religion. And so there's this revolt, and the Jews remove him from power, and they rededicate the temple to the Lord, to the living and true God. And so Hanukkah, the festival of lights, is they have seven days where they're burning the candle before the Lord, and they believe that they're going to run out of non-desecrated olive oil, and the light before the Lord is going to go out. But God stretches this light out, and allows it to burn before him as as he rededicates the temple. And so this is a political kind of thing. The people are excited. This is like the 4th of July almost. It's a big holiday. Hey, are you going to do something about what's happened to our nation? Don't keep us in suspense anymore. And Jesus claims, I'm the good shepherd. He says, I'm the Messiah. Look at the works I've done. I'm the son of God. My father is God. And the father and I are one. And the Jews, are—they. this is too much for them right? They pick up stones to kill him because of what he said. So you think about how politically charged this is. And Jesus, I don't want to say he escapes. Jesus doesn't escape. He's the lord of heaven's armies, the king of kings, right? So he leaves Jerusalem at this time and goes beyond the Jordan to where John was first baptizing. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem under his own, uh, like, through his own will and under his own power, and he crosses the Jordan River, this kind of ancient boundary in Israel, Imagine for us, oh, they're on the other side of the Mississippi, or they're south of the Mason-Dixon line. And the long arm of the law is not quite long enough and powerful enough to reach out into this wilderness area and snatch Jesus and his disciples. And so Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem under threat of death, and then we pick up in chapter 11 here, where the story of raising Lazarus comes from. But I wanted to provide all that context for why is everyone so angry at Jesus Where is he? And why are his disciples going to be so concerned about going back to Jerusalem? So here we go. Uh, We're now in chapter 11, starting with verse 1. And immediately we see dramatic tension in the story. So a man named Lazarus was sick. So Lazarus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Eleazar. The Lord is my helper. The Lord rescues me. So the story starts, a man named the Lord is my helper is very sick. And we see just in the last chapter, Jesus claims to be God, and that he's the good shepherd, and that his sheep cannot be snatched away from him. So the question is, what is God going to do here? God is my rescue is sick. Is God going to rescue him? So Lazarus is sick. He lives in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus, again, Eliezer, the Lord is my helper, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. So we talked about Eliezer's name and what it means. Jesus' name uh, in, Jewish, uh, in Hebrew would be Yeshua, which means he saves. So the two sisters send a message to he saves that the Lord is my rescue is sick. So this tension has developed a little bit more here. What is the Lord going to do here? But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And when he says Judea, he means we're going to cross the Jordan River. Fact well within the reach of the law, the long arm of the law from Jerusalem. And this place, Bethany, we'll see is only about a mile and a half from downtown Jerusalem. So it's very close. Close. His disciples, uh, understandably, are concerned about his plan, right? We already saw this incident between Peter and Jesus where Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers, and I must be killed. And Peter's like, I, I don't like that plan, That's not a good plan. Let's not do it that way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's what I'm doing. And so his disciples are concerned again. He's told them that he's going to die. The people of Jerusalem just wanted to kill him a couple weeks ago. And he says, we're going to go back. And so the disciples are scared. And there's this really interesting exchange between Jesus and his disciples. And we start to see how Jesus responds to people who are afraid or or who are in tragedy. And so let's pay attention to that. We won't look at this this whole exchange, but we're going to start in verse 9 and read verse 9 and 10. Chapter 11, verse 9 and 10. And so Jesus replies to his disciples, There are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. So Jesus' disciples say, We're afraid. The people there were just trying to kill you and now you want to go back and he tells them this uh, you know there are 12 hours of daylight every day and people can work and walk during the day and they're not going to stumble because they have the light of the world with them and I started I was wondering what does that what does that mean what is he trying to tell them here was you look back a couple different a couple chapters in John Jesus makes the statement I am the light of the world he's referencing to his disciples they're afraid And he responds to them by making a claim or pointing out something about himself. Hey, guys, remember, I'm the light of the world. I'm not sending you into the darkness alone. I'm the lamp unto your feet and the light into your path. I am the light of the world. And so while I'm here with you during these 12 hours of daylight, we have work to do. And I will be with you. I'm not sending you out alone. I'm going with you. And that's why I can send you to places like this. And so he doesn't tell his disciples, we should have more courage or you shouldn't be afraid or any of this. He responds by telling them who he is and that he's going to be with them. Okay, so his disciples, you know, he's Jesus. And so they decide to go with him and they cross the Jordan. And we'll pick this up in, uh, in verse 17. So Jesus arrives at Bethany and he was told that Lazarus has already been in his grave for four days. For four days and this detail of four is important so medical technology has changed quite a bit we can declare someone dead and we can be pretty certain that they've passed on but in these days you know many of you have probably attended wakes and those were much more necessary at times in the past and so the jews believe that after three days someone's like double dead they're certified dead (laughs) they ain't coming back they're not going to wake up And this is why that that four days Lazarus has been dead is so important. This is also why Jesus was in the tomb for three days, right? He wasn't just unconscious. He was dead. So Lazarus is for sure double dead. He's certified dead at this point. He's been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. It's like a mile and a half, so it's really close. And so many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary and their loss. Many of the people from Jerusalem. These are the same people that jammed Jesus up at Solomon's colonnade and said, don't keep us in suspense anymore. Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. And then when he answered them, they picked up stones to kill him. So a lot of these same people have made the mile and a half walk and are hanging out in Bethany at Martha and Mary's house. So when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. We see these two sisters respond differently to Jesus coming, and it doesn't say in here that either of them did something wrong. One of them was sitting in sadness at her home, experiencing the loss of her brother, and the other one goes immediately to meet Jesus. This highlights differences, I think, in their personality, and that's it, right? So Martha is more of the leader. She takes charge. She goes immediately to Jesus, and you can see the intimacy of the relationship they have. Jesus' dear friend is sick. These are people who know each other. So she starts, and she doesn't even, there's not greeting. She falls at Jesus' feet and immediately starts to pour her heart out to him. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yeshua, the Lord saves. If only you had been here, the Lord rescues me, my brother would not have died. And she's sitting here in the tragedy of life, knowing and believing that Jesus could have made it different, but that he didn't she pours her heart out to him. And let's see how Jesus responds to her. He tells her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, you know, maybe you've been in a situation like this. And so it seems almost begrudging. She's like, yeah, I know. I know at the last day, when the resurrection of the dead, that he'll rise again. I have hope in that distant future that sometime that will happen. But Jesus is, tells her, he's kind of like, this, that's not exactly what I mean. At least not at this moment. Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me even after dying, or, and will live even after dying, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? So Jesus responds to Martha's broken heart by saying, anyone who believes in me will never die. If you live in me and believe in me, you will never, ever die. And then he asks a really tough question. He said, do you believe that, Martha? Your brother's been in the grave for four days. But if you believe in me and live in me, you will never, ever die. Do you believe that, Martha? And it's a tough question to answer, given the circumstances that Martha's living through. But look at how she answers. She says, yes, Lord. Remember what he claimed two weeks ago in Jerusalem that I'm the good shepherd, I'm sent from God, I'm the son of God, and me and my father are one. And Martha says, I have always believed you were the Messiah sent from God, the son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. So Martha is not just simply making a, a random claim. She's affirming, she's saying, I believe everything that you said in Jerusalem two weeks ago. I believe what you said. And the people that are here visiting me were so angry about it, they were willing to kill you, or at least try to. But in the midst of all this tragedy, you tell me that if I believe in you, I'll never die, and I believe that. And the reason I believe it is because I believe that you're the Son of God, sent from God into this world, and that you and the Father are one. So you have the power to sustain and redeem me. That's her answer to him. And so Martha then runs and gets her sister Mary. She calls Mary aside And look, this is one of the reasons why I don't think that, I think this is a highlight of their personality differences is because when Mary hears that Jesus is there, immediately she gets up and goes to him. Her heart's broken, but she goes to her Lord. And so Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. He's not going into the crowd just yet. He wants some time with the sisters. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed that she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, and again we see the intimacy of this relationship, she falls at his feet right away. Not how was the trip, how are you doing, good to see you Jesus. She falls at his feet and says, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. So we see Jesus in the midst of the tragedy of life and how does he respond? When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. And so I looked at this, and I thought, where does this anger come from, this deep anger and this troubled spirit that Jesus has when he sees the pain of his people? What is it that he's bothered by? Where does this deep anger well up from? And a story came to mind, a time when I've experienced deep anger and a troubled spirit welling up within me. And so in 2012, I was um, in the Marine Corps, and I was in Afghanistan. I was a Marine sergeant, and so I was a squad leader, and I had my 12 guys that I was responsible for, and we would go out on patrols and do different things. And this one day in particular, one of my Marines was uh, injured by an improvised explosive device. And So in a situation like this, when you're in charge, there's many different things that you have to do. But eventually, one of the things that you do is you look over someone that you... You stand there and you look over someone that you care about, that you love, that you respect, that you are responsible for, and you see the brokenness and the tragedy of life in a spectacularly salient way manifested right in front of you. So I looked down at at my Marine, someone I'd known for a long time. So I thought of his young wife at home. And how she had sent us cookies or candied pecans. I looked down at someone who's strong and athletic and capable and brave and courageous. And survival is questionable, and if he does survive, his life is going to be very different than anything that he would have imagined before. And as I looked down at him, a deep anger welled up within me, and I was deeply troubled. And I saw the brokenness and the tragedy of life right there visited on someone that I deeply cared about. And so I look at this and I say, it can be hard to imagine what Jesus felt. He's holy God, but he's also a holy man. And he lived a life of sorrow and he knows our pain and our affliction. And I think at this moment, the God of the universe is there experiencing the tragedy of the brokenness of this world with his people. And he's deeply moved. We serve a God who's not distant, but who's with us in the tragedy. Who's present with us. And our problems deeply move him. And the brokenness of the world angers him. And his desire wholeheartedly is to fix it for us. So let's keep going here. That was verse 35. The verse uh, 36. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said this man healed the blind man. Couldn't he have just kept Lazarus from dying? And this is not unusual. People still react this way to the Lord now. They say, oh, look at how great God is and the blessings he provided. And other people might look at the same situation and say, doesn't he love you? Why do you let that happen to you? God's plans and God's timing are different than ours, but they're better than ours. We see at the beginning of this story, he says, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may see the glory of God. So the people respond to Jesus in in their normal kind of ways, ways that we respond to Jesus now. But Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. The brokenness of the world is still powerfully affecting him. And the tomb was a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. It's a cave big enough to fit a body into, right? And the stone that's blocking it is big enough to block a hole that size. So it's like kind of a major stone. He tells them to roll this away. It's probably going to take a couple strong guys to get this stone out of the way. And Martha, one last time, she's got to kind of insert herself here. Hey, it's a little too late, Jesus. Your timing was wrong. You weren't here. She goes, don't roll the stone away. He's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. She's like, no, you don't get it, Jesus. You were a little late. You didn't come when I asked. And he tells her, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. He's not asking us to believe something for no reason. He's giving us evidence and proof. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hand and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth, and Jesus told him, Unwrap him and let him go. So we believe that this is a historical event. We believe that this is something that really happened. There was really Jesus, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, subjected himself to the humiliation of being born as a man and being placed in a manger. And he lived his life under the, in this brokenness of the world. And he... He starts his earthly ministry and he becomes friends with Lazarus and he goes and calls Lazarus out of the grave. We believe that Lazarus was really dead and he was really called out of the grave by Christ. But this story is more than just that. It's an example and it's a picture to us today of what the light of the world, what the resurrection and the life, what the bread that came down from heaven, what our dear friend Jesus does for us. So not only is this a real thing that happened, Lazarus is raised from the dead. He's called out of the grave. He's powerless to save himself. He's wrapped in grave clothes. His feet and his hands are tied together. His face is covered. He can't see anything. He's dead for four days. He's powerless to help himself. He's in a cave with a giant stone in front of it that he can't roll away. And the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, pierces the darkness and marches back into Judea where the people want to kill him. And he calls, Lazarus, come out. He orders that the stone is rolled away. And he says, Jason, come out. He says, Becca, come out. He says, Orlando, come out. He says, Danielle, come out. He calls each and every one of us. This is a picture of us, dead in our sorrow and in our sin. Lost without hope with nowhere to begin. But Christ, the light of the world, penetrates the darkness and orders that the stone be rolled aside and then calls us out and rises us to new life in him. Look, this doesn't solve all of Lazarus' problems. It's really important. It doesn't say Lazarus lived happily ever after. If you look a couple chapters ahead, this event actually puts him squarely in the crosshairs of the religious leaders. They're like, we got to kill this Jesus guy and we have to kill Lazarus. It is not happily ever after. At least it doesn't look that way. But we know that Christ has raised Lazarus from the dead and he says that if you live in me and you believe in me that you will never ever die. Yes, do you believe that? Do you believe that, Martha? When the tragedies of life are right in front of you, can you still believe God's promises? And if you do, for those of us who follow Christ, the best truly is yet to come. The same power that raised Lazarus from the dead, the same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead, is the power that no longer lives in a faraway temple that we have to go see once a year. He has made himself available, and he lives in each and every one of us. He's made his dwelling in our heart. And so I'll close us in prayer today. And as we start to pray, I would ask that you reflect on that. If you are a follower of Christ, the best truly is yet to come. And that's because he's made a way to raise you from the dead. And when you're dead in your sins, he's covered over your sins. And he's calling you out of the grave. But you have a part to play in this. You have a part to play. You have to answer when he calls. You have to listen for his voice. And if the Holy Spirit's calling you today, don't let your heart be hardened. Some of you may have not given your lives to Christ yet, or you may have walked away a little bit, and I'm sure that there are many good reasons for that. And it might be that you've been faced with the tragedies of life, and you say, this is a little much. I don't know if I can believe those things you said. But if you're hearing the Holy Spirit calling your heart today, saying, come out, come out of your grave, then I ask that you would answer. So let's bow our heads together as the worship team comes up. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, that you penetrate the darkness and that you allow us to walk safely without tripping. Lord, for those of us who have answered your call, help us to completely submit ourselves to you so that we may grow closer to you and be more transformed and conformed into your likeness. And Lord, if there are people that are listening today who hear or feel a burning in their hearts, who hear you calling them, I ask that you give them the courage to answer, even in the midst of life's tragedies. Jesus told us that if we live in him and believe in him, that we will never, ever die. So that means we start by acknowledging that we are dead in our sin and powerless to help ourselves. And acknowledging that Christ is supreme over all. He has power even over death. And that he is the only power that can save us. And then when he calls our name to come out of the grave, that we answer and that we come out. we submit ourselves to his rule and authority so that he may become our savior and give us eternal life if you prayed today that christ would come into your life please connect with someone afterwards at our connect booth or with one of our pastors so we can pray with you and help get you set up on your journey And I ask for the rest of us that God continues to pour out his spirit on us so that we may continue to be his hands and feet and live a life worthy to the high calling and the high price that has been paid for us. Lord, thank you for today in your mighty name. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.